This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number, let's see, we're up to 563, and we welcome back for part two of The Heat Is On, Tom Phillips from out in California. Looking forward to a great discussion and uh, adding some more detail that we weren't able to get to in part one. Before we get started, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now... Here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, who was first to identify Carl Georg Munthers and Baltzar von Platten as the co-inventors of the gas absorption refrigerator. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, November 1, 2019, it's been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia question. Name the scientist who in 1896 calculated that cutting CO2 in half would suffice to produce an ice age. He further calculated that a doubling of atmospheric CO2 would give a total global warming of 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, so today's guest for part two, Tom Phillips, is a consultant on healthy, sustainable buildings, and he lives in Davis, California. He has spent over 35 years working at the intersection of research and policy addressing public health, pollution, and buildings, mainly at the California Air Resources Board. We had him on recently to talk about the heat is on, we're calling it part one, and then uh, the subtitle being How Climate Change Will Affect Indoor Air Quality, Future-Proofing Buildings, and Beyond Energy Efficiency. We're going to do a little review on how we will affect, uh, how climate change will affect IAQ, and then get into more detail this week on future-proofing and beyond energy efficiency. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you, Joe. Uh, It's kind of you to invite me. I just realized it's been almost a year since we did this last show. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> I, I tried to throw in some newer information to update the slides that we had before, and we'll try to just kind of fly through a lot of the info and, and, and get to specific questions, I guess. So, um, Great. I didn't realize it had been that long. I didn't even look at the date, Tom. But let's let's start with a little a little more about you. Um, why did you decide to focus on climate issues here? You're you're kind of like me. You're, you had one 
career, you're now uh, no longer with the uh, CARB, uh, and you're you're doing your own thing, it seems to me. What, what made you decide to focus on climate? Well, you can jump to slide four, I guess, if you want to show All right, you. let's do that. Well, you know what? Let's, let's back up a minute because um, go to slide uh, two. Got it. Topics. And there we go. So we're going to do um, the intro and recap, I guess. And, and the bottom line I want to share with everybody is the next slide, conclusions and recommendations, um, just so you know where we're headed on slide three. Got it. Um, and uh, basically what I've figured, and a lot of people have figured out, <laughs> is that we need to adapt to buildings uh, and communities to climate change right now for the future climate that's happening as we speak and uh, address the climate crisis and get our carbon emissions not only to negative but to start putting carbon back in the uh, uh, the soil and, and, and so on. Um, and then I want to uh, give some examples of how we can adapt buildings. I don't know if I'll get to communities so that we can uh, address the increased cooling loads and, and reduce the GHGs and mitigate climate change and then All right. briefly cover the existing guidelines and standards and what's coming up next. And so uh, let's see the next slide. Why did I focus on climate change? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm kind of a doubting Thomas, I guess you'd say I want to convince myself, you know, that before I come to any conclusions or make recommendations, uh, having worked in kind of the public uh, health uh, and public agency arena for so long. Um, and so I basically, when I looked at the data, I, I couldn't ignore it anymore. <laughs> hmm. um, and I had been doing a little bit of work on climate change over the years in uh, various venues uh, professionally related to buildings mainly and, uh, and stratospheric ozone and those kind of global issues. Uh, but uh, once I retired from CARB, I uh, looked at, you know, where the important needs were in terms of public health action and climate change was the biggie. Um, and so this was kind of the opportunity for me to start um, working in that area and trying to uh, help out. Um, so I kind of asked myself, um, well, when I looked at the data, um, I'm trying to think slide five, we'd already had some killer heat waves in the U S um, and wildfires were starting to get worse. This was back, you know, around 2010, 2006, 2010. People had been talking in the 2000s about starting to factor in future climate into building design. Um, the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Science, came out with recommendations on doing that in their report on indoor air quality and climate change. Um, so this was all kind of bubbling up uh, in, in the science and literature and, and reality. Um, and then when I was working at home, uh, I started, uh, kind of overheating myself because I was, <laughs> I was trying not to use the air conditioner and we have an older, but retrofitted house. And I realized this is getting, you know, downright uncomfortable. Um, and you know, my energy bills are going to go up and we since then did more retrofits, but also in slide, um, let's see, six, I guess it is. Um, what did I, what I kind of had to ask myself, um, 
you know, because I couldn't plead ignorance and say, well, I don't know about climate change and, and how it's going to affect the, the globe and the ecosystems and, and people and so on. So um, I had to ask myself, what am I going to tell my, my children and grandchildren when they ask me, what did you do about climate change, Grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I came up with these options. Uh, you know, oh, just go play inside. It's, it's too hot and, and smoggy and smoky and, and, and there's dangerous insects outside. So just stay inside. Um, and I, and uh, I could say, well, it's too expensive. It's, you know, we can't afford to address it. Uh, or it's not going to happen uh, until I'm long gone. Um, and then, uh, or I could just totally ignore things and party on like it was 2099. But uh, being, uh, I think, trying to be responsible and morally sound for my children and grandchildren and friends and, and the species around the world, I, I think we have to act to help future generations and we have to do it now. So that's kind of the 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 journey I went through. And so, um, and I had, I'd experienced some heat, heat exhaustion myself over the years. And I started to see older family relatives, um, you know, just about collapse from what I thought was pretty mild, uh, exposure, uh, you know, outdoors. Uh, and I, uh, started seeing the risk estimates for elderly and for other vulnerable populations, which were up in the like 9,000 a year, California for uh, premature death by the end of the century. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty alarming and there was a pretty good data out there. And, and we also knew that most of the vulnerable populations die in their homes. And so, and we know there are a lot of indoor risk factors that contributed to that, not just outdoor exposure, but a lot of indoor factors where they can't cool down and they can't sleep well. Uh, and, and so on. On the first show, we, we talked a lot about the, the indoor air quality issues, and you just mentioned a few. Um, a lot of it's heat-related. People were overheating, and uh, then as a result, they may be using more air conditioning, which can you know lead to its own issues if people don't maintain that air conditioning and so on. But what other um, indoor air quality issues should we be concerned about when it comes to, to climate change and heat? Uh, let's see. I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to get at. I mean, we know there's a lot of fat building factors that contribute to the heat buildup. Um, are you, or, and there's a lot of health, uh, vulnerability factors. Um, so I'm not sure which, which one you want to focus well, on. Well, I think also you mentioned in the first show, um, it wasn't just heat. There was a, there was a whole list of things that we, we had to be concerned about, you know, more insects. Uh, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, we can do a quick recap. I think that's way down here somewhere um, on um, slide <laughs> 70, um, 70, slide 70. Sorry about that. But I can, I can tell you now. Uh, yeah, there's... Uh, the heat waves are going to be more frequent. They already already are in the last 10 years. The, the, the weather files used for energy design are out of date for the most part. California just off, updated theirs. But the heat waves will be uh, more frequent, hotter, longer, and in some cases more humid. Um, and the nights will be warmer, and that turns out to be a major risk factor for health effects in many cases. 
uh, more frequent, longer power outages, those have been increasing pretty steadily, like 2% a year. And, and about three quarters of those are due to uh, weather related things, not just heat waves, but you know, wind and fire and floods and whatever. And uh, uh, there's, um, and then also uh, the overheating the building, <clears throat> buildings will be exacerbated as the urban heat island gets exacerbated by climate change and population growth and so on. So there's uh, various interactive effects there. And I think um, the other key thing to note is that the, the climate models are continuously improving and some newer studies just indicated that the models have been underestimating the amount of, of uh, heating of the globe um, because they weren't addressing the, the effects of clouds very well. But those uh, were starting to get better at, at, the models are starting to get better at addressing the effects of clouds. And so, um, so a lot of these estimates that we're seeing currently are probably underestimating the actual effects of warming and, and the consequent health effects. I'm curious, Tom, where are we, you know, we were talking about this 15, 20 years ago, and there were some estimates on how, how much additional heat we would see, you know, uh, and it does seem like um, the last 10 years seems like many of the hottest years we've, we've ever recorded have been in the last 10 years. How well did we predict 15, 20 years ago what's happening today? Um. You know, I haven't looked at that latest paper in detail. I think okay. it's, it's significantly off. Um, my wife was asking a similar question recently. And what many of the modelers do is try to do a reality check and say, uh, and do uh, backcasting and say, how well would this model predict historical heat waves? You know, if we factored in all the known parameters, if you have decent data. And generally, they do pretty well. Now, some models are better at, uh, forecasting or uh, predicting heat, uh, heat waves and things like that. Um, as, and, uh, so for example, in the, um, energy commission's Caladap website, they've selected the four best models to do those kinds of, um, predictions. Um, whereas some people might throw together like 10 or 20 different models and just look at the average and general trends. So there's a lot of, you know, still a lot of variability and uncertainty, but um, when you're looking at heat, you probably do want to try to pick the best models for that. Um, and the other key thing is that given the big variability in, in weather, uh, you know, it's highly recommended that you use like, say, 20-year averages for your climate estimates. Um, mm. And so when you look at the charts, um, for example, um, I'm trying to think where it is. Um, let's see. I, I threw some in here from CalAdapt. Uh, if you go to slide um, 37. There we go. And um, the point there is that you can see um, on the bottom part of the chart, a steady increase um, uh, since you know 1950s uh, in the cooling degree days in Los Angeles, which is a fairly mild climate. Um, 
and you see much more drastic increases in the inland parts of California and other parts of the country where it's much hotter. Um, but you can see that, you know, currently we're around uh, uh, 12, 1500 cooling degree days and it's all gonna almost double or at least jump by a thousand by the end of the century. Um, and so, the, but there's a lot of kind of bouncing up and down in these, these numbers. So you want, if you're just picking a single number, you need to take like, you know, 20 year average or something. So often people will do uh, say mid century and late century, or maybe somewhere in between. Hmm. Okay. Um, you want to go back and just start where we left off with the, the slides back in the early part, Tom? Um, yeah. Maybe if we jump ahead, uh, just to reiterate um, one point on uh, slide 39. Okay. Um, there we go. Yeah. Now this is kind of a, artsy uh, Jackson Pollock slide, I guess you'd say. <laughs> but the key point is the color scale, yellow is super hot, like up into the 120s. And if you look at the growing number of yellow dots, they start to pick up in the 2020s. And by the 2030s, they're fairly common. Uh, those are like super extreme heat days. Um, and um, we'll see, uh, by the 2020s, we'll see at least two months out of the year with a lot of those super extreme heat days. Hmm. Uh, by the 2050s, they'll be fairly common when you get over towards the right side of the chart. Um, and then if the last, um, you know, from the, like the 2060s on, on the far right, July and August will be almost entirely uh, extreme heat days, which is, uh, let's see, I want to say for Sacramento, it's uh, 103 and higher, uh, I believe. I'm not, uh, and the way uh, extreme heat days are design, defined in this um, tool and, and a lot of uh, analyses is they take, say, the 95th percentile of historical temperature for that day. Um, so it's adjusted for how well buildings and people are adapted to that climate. Um, and it gives you kind of a relative comparison to the, the past. But you can see that, um, you know, there's, uh, before 2000, you know, there wasn't um, uh, uh, such a dense number of, of high heat days. So that that um, is super important when you design your building because it shifts the whole emphasis from cooling to heating. I mean, I'm just the opposite. <laughs> From heating to cooling, okay. The heating, that other chart that we showed before, you know, the cooling degrees are going up, but the heating degrees are dropping even faster, which kind of also makes sense when we know that the nights are getting much warmer uh, and faster than the days are heating up. So, anyway. Let's, let's jump a little into the... Um the idea of how we future-proof buildings, Tom. I mean, we, we didn't really get a chance to talk much about that on the last show. We talked a little bit about it, but I'd like to, if you would, to kind of review what we talked a little bit about on the last show, but then go into a little more detail on this whole idea of future-proofing buildings. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's jump to um, slide nine. And um, – you can adapt buildings and communities at the building scale, community scale, like the neighborhood um, and the regional scale. And 
Uh, I'm going to focus just on the building scale, given the time we have, but the community scale is talking about, say, urban greening, um, outdoor shade structures, uh, water features, uh, and so on. Regional scale is talking about optimizing the airflow uh, through urban canyons and neighborhoods and so on to not only cool them off, but also to flush out air pollution and so on. And as social systems, just in the last few years, I think it's really uh, coming on everybody's radar because of the equity and uh, social and disadvantaged community issues uh, where the social connection and support uh, is so important for a lot of vulnerable populations. Um, hmm. So uh, next slide. Um, we know that uh, humans can adapt to um, uh, extreme heat to some extent by their uh, and mammals can, by their behavior, they find cool places to hang out or they take siestas or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, uh, and I've, I, I've have, uh, known the people that, you know, will also put on cold, uh, damp towels and fans and things sure. like that. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and physiology wise mammals and a lot of other types of species can, are designed to handle high heat. They have ears that act like radiators. Um, and Vulcans can do that too. Next <laughs> slide, please. Uh, and uh, ancient or uh, indigenous type cultures kind of figured this out by, uh, you know, using local materials and, and shade structures to build in cliffs and, and, and near water and so on. Um, and this worked great until they had a mega drought in the 1300s and uh, uh, had to evacuate and, and abandon the area in the southwest, the Mesa Verde cliff dwellings here. Next slide. Hey, you talk a lot about shading. I think that's, that's an important topic, Tom. I know we'll get into it a little more, but go ahead on this one. Well, this is, gets, gets at that issue where we started out with, say, indoor fireplaces, which were inefficient and polluting. Then we went to high-tech uh, ventilation and filtration and now we're moving towards in the 21st century we're moving towards simpler more durable design more resilient uh, that don't rely so much on mechanical and, and uh, energy systems they're using the sun um, and with some you know air movement to control moisture and, and uh, indoor pollution and so on um, the the downside is that when you have such a super tight efficient envelope becomes like a thermos bottle that can easily overheat. So you have to be very careful about controlling your solar gain. And some of the early passive houses were actually overheating in the winter in Germany because they weren't controlling the solar gain very well. Hmm. So shading uh, becomes super important. And especially if we have a, a climate that's heating up quickly. Um, so the next slide, please. You know, I see a lot of that. Even I was down in, in Pittsburgh last week and um, a lot of the new buildings today have uh, shading that's you know th they build shades in around the windows yeah. and and i'm assuming that's one of the things you're talking about and here you've got an example good yeah these are just some passive houses from around the world but you're also right you're starting to see more exterior shading and sometimes it's engineered uh very carefully to uh handle say uh late afternoon shade from the the west and even the north sometimes uh, so you'll see not only horizontal shades but vertical side shades um, and so the basic concept is you want 
something that's uh, adjustable or designed to handle the seasonal differences. And so on the left, you see something with adjustable louvers um, and there's various, you know, energy uh, engineering design tools to how to figure out the sun angle in your location and seasonal variation and uh, what kind of overhangs you need. Uh, you can also plant deciduous vines. Um, and so those uh, will give you shade, you know, during the growing season. And then you have to clean up the leaves afterwards, but it's kind of a nice uh, uh, aesthetic and, and a healthy approach. I, I actually grew uh, string beans or peas or something from uh, a planter box outside of my uh, first house. Hmm. Uh, and uh, gave us great shade on the west side and the south side and, and a nice harvest. So there's, uh, in an emergency, you can just stick foil on your windows, I guess, and you know, on the outside and get a little bit of shading. But um, you know, ideally, you design this into the building and you factor in future climate, which I can get to later because the, the question becomes, well, when the heating season starts growing by two months on each end, which I tried to show in that one of those earlier slides, you have to start cooling your house in May all the way into October mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of our climates in North America. So that changes, um, you know, the amount of shading you're going to need too. next slide, please. You know, Tom, it always reminds me, I have to mention it, our old uh, technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil used to tell a story of how, when he would go uh, visit, in uh, Saharan Africa, how they would have vines kind of growing over the windows and then they would let water kind of trickle down on those vines to get some, some, some cooling in that very hot, dry climate. Yeah. There's people still experimenting with that, like in Japan on their bus stations. Uh, my wife's grandfather had a lanai over their back deck by their pool in Southern California back in the fifties and they had a little uh, mystery system there set up, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so um, let's see. I suspect we'll see more and more of that as time goes on. At least I hope so. It seems like a fairly economical way of handling it. Yeah. Uh, quick story on shading. That's kind of my new hobby is to take pictures as I wander around town and, and other communities to take pictures of shading of buildings. And, um, Sometimes you see some great kind of do-it-yourself awnings and, and uh, various fixtures, and you see a lot of now these solar fabric shades you can string up. Um, uh, unfortunately, I still see a lot of window air conditioners and um, things that, you know, use a lot of energy and produce uh, greenhouse gases. So uh, even, in new, even in new buildings, I don't see I, around – here in Northern California, I see some buildings with pretty good external shading, but you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not that common yet, I guess I would say. No, it's not. I mean, and it's mostly the newer buildings. I, like I said, when I was in Pittsburgh and I, you kind of got my attention when you said they were on the West side when, you know, the late afternoon sun was coming and that, I think that's what they were after there. Yeah. I mean, even some of the so-called high performance buildings, Turn out they they've kind of dropped the ball on this. There was a a uh, a real showcase building, a dorm at UC Davis here, and uh, they had PV and all this other stuff. And they ended up uh, they didn't have much. Uh, I don't think they had any external shading on the west side. And I ran into somebody that said, "Yeah, the windows were cracking from the extreme." Wow. <laughs> hmm. 
I think they learned hard. We're coming up on halftime. Do you want to go through one more slide, and then I want to give Cliff a shot at uh, see if he has any questions or comments. Sure. sure. What's the next slide? Uh, there you go. For that. Um, next slide. Uh, this just shows you that when you do um, uh, summer shading on the far right of these curves and you look at the green curve, you can drastically drop the time uh, that the building of the super efficient passive house in Southern California overheats. Um, and they also found similar results in multifamily building. Um, just recently, the good news is somebody's actually, I think, measured modeled with future climate and passive houses. And, uh, and the point is that designing to current near zero or, or low, low, I mean, near a zero energy or low energy is not necessarily going to protect you from current, let alone future overheating, unless you specifically address that. Hmm. Next slide. Uh, and so uh, I got into this in doing a consulting project for the Energy Commission, and I uh, ran across a lot of work that was being done mainly in the UK uh, for future-proofing buildings. And they were looking at retrofitting as well as new construction because they had an ad aggressive carbon reduction plan. And so they developed a uh, future weather files out to the end of the century and had probability uh, distributions. And so you could pick the level of risk you wanted and so on. Um, and then also... Uh, Thanks to the work of Alex Wilson, a lot of other people building green and uh, elsewhere, people started looking at the issue of passive survivability, the short-term emergencies when you run out of power, how long before you have to evacuate uh, your house uh, because it's too hot or too cold or with a, say a, a senior center care facility, you know, if they're really sensitive to temperature, what's, what temperature do you have to start getting ready to act? And, um, and I think I was mentioning to you, I have a friend here who had to uh, organize a fleet of buses to evacuate uh, people in a care facility in the recent Santa Rosa, Sonoma County fires. Um, so there's questions, um, you know, um, about just how you do that. We can get into that. And so it's kind of an evolving area and it's not well-defined, but people are actually doing it and something we need to start doing now. You know, that's interesting you bring that up, but, you know, we're talking about future-proofing buildings. I guess we've got to also think about um, buildings that haven't been future-proofed, and even those that have, there are still going to be times when we have to look at uh, more extreme measures, like, like moving people to uh, cooling centers or whatever the case may be. Yeah, i touch on that later. Uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic from the data I've seen, and and, and not just because I'm a doubting Thomas, but because the reality is when you look at the thousands and millions of people you would have to put in cooling centers, you know, 24 mm. seven, or at least for a good part of the day, that's, that's a um, gargantuan task mm. <laughs> and, and probably not too realistic. And then, and from talking to some of the, the people in the field and, and practitioners, uh, I think they tend to agree that, yeah, it's not really a good solution. It, um, there's various kind of uh, practical issues um, in terms of uh, getting people aware of it. Like most people aren't even aware around here that there's a cooling center in Sacramento. Um, <laughs> same thing with New York. They did a survey and 
and then all, they're either not well marked or advertised. That Tom, I'm coming up on halftime here. Let's uh, get any final thoughts you have before we go to halftime. Uh, cooling centers will help, but very limited. It's I think the main shelter is our home or schools or offices or whoever. So we have to think about shelter in place for emergencies, but also long-term performance to protect the planet. And then we have to look at both existing buildings and new buildings and, and exactly. how we handle each of those. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we're going to stop for a second and uh, thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of, of today's uh, The Heat Is On Part 2 with Tom Phillips. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Tom Phillips calling in or, or joining us live from uh, California, outside of Sacramento, California. Tom, before the half, we were talking about... Um, you know, kind of future-proofing buildings or climate-proofing buildings for the future. Talked a lot about shading. I know one of the other things that we talked about on the first show was uh, air sealing and and proper insulation. You've mentioned Passive House a few times. So it just made me think, um, do you think Passive House is, is sort of the future? Uh, is, that, is that going to be the best way to go? Do we have to go to that level of uh, insulating and air sealing? Yeah, um, you know, I hate to say it because it's, it gets more complicated and we already have major quality control problems in our construction <laughs> industry. <laughs> so that, and, and Europeans have learned and, and do a pretty good job of quality control in terms of building construction and, and training and the trades and so on. Uh, but, you know, the joke in California is that in the U.S., the suburbs were built with a chainsaw and a case of beer, so you still <laughs> you still find the beer cans in the wall when you open it up. You know, yes, uh, you do. <laughs> uh, All right, 
but, but um, the, 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 the caveat there is that you have to really do good building science because you can get it wrong sometimes where you create moisture problems if you don't ventilate right or can look at your, where your vapor boundaries are and, and uh, condensation or if you don't get good air mixing um, or if you have um, thermal mass that gets out of control and all of a sudden it's overheated and it takes days to cool down and so on. Interesting. Hey, Cliff, I wanted to let you jump in here. I know you had a question or a comment. I do, Joe. Uh, thanks. Uh, Tom, uh, I, you know, I, I think like other people, uh, you know, we hear a lot about global warming and, you know, there's two sides, uh, you know, to every story. And uh, you know, one of the things I've heard, and uh, perhaps you can comment on it, is that supposedly there are 32 different climate models. And, out of these, the Russian model uh, has been the most accurate. And, um, you know, models being used in America, you know, have built in, uh, I, I guess, code or whatever to kind of provide, you know, the readings that, you know, scientists are looking for. So, <laughs> I, 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 I'm skeptical of that, uh, being a scientist. Um, uh, but I, you know, I can't really comment yet until I, I look at the source information. You have to go to the source and verify it. It sounds fishy to me. And the reason I say it is that I follow the climate news and literature fairly well. And that's news to me, uh, but it could be. I, I would say that, yeah, some models um, often do better than others for certain things. A classic example is hurricanes. The European models do much better. Uh, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy was a classic example. Mm -hmm. uh, did very well in predicting where it was going to hit in New York, but the U.S. models didn't. Uh, and, and but those are known things, you know, and and the scientists know that, and they're probably working to fix those, or at least they they use the the right models where appropriate. Um, and so, you know, this sounds a little fishy to me to to be polite. Um, so I would be uh, curious to see where that information came from and, you know, what, um, you know, what other scientists think about it. That's kind of what peer review is about. Um, so, uh, but the, you know, the point is even if there's 32 models and that one model is a lot different then that raises questions, you know, and it kind of, you know, you have to take kind of a balanced view of things and know what, what's causing these differences. Fair enough. Um, you know, we talked about shading. I'm wondering, and I mentioned that you had talked about um, air sealing and, and proper insulation. I, and I take your point on quality control. I think uh, that's a it's a huge issue in the construction industry. I think it's getting a little better as codes get tougher and um, our, our construction uh, workers are starting to have to pay more attention to how insulation is installed and, uh, you know, they, they, and, and they're learning a little more about uh, air sealing and, and things of that nature. But I, I think you bring up a good point going all the way to passive house might be a little rough with our current uh, workforce. Um, is there some intermediate level uh, is what else, what do you recommend then if, if we're, we're not going to get the passive house, first of all, it's, it's a good bit more expensive um, and and there may be diminishing returns as well when it, when we, when it comes to additional insulation. Yeah. So where do we go? Well, um, 
I've got some slides that address that, but just briefly, I'll say for existing homes, I think we can get there, and California is almost there now with net zero energy. Okay. And iteration in over three years, I think, is going to be even closer to uh, zero energy. Uh, but even more important, uh, they're going to shift to a carbon metric uh, that factors in where your energy source is coming from, because that's our real end goal is to reduce carbon emissions. And, you know, at the same time, make sure you don't create outdoor pollution problems and indoor pollution problems and so on. Uh, so instead of having a, a metric that's based on energy and peak energy pricing and so on, which we currently do, it's going to be based on the carbon emissions. And, and that's important because some of the peak power is, is, ends up using gas-fired or maybe even wood-fired um, uh, power plants, which can be uh, high carbon emitters. This, okay. is for, this is for a new uh, net zero home uh, basic design in Bakersfield, Southern Inland California, very hot. And it basically shows that if you um, start uh, with the bare minimum in the current net zero standards, uh, you can still do a lot better if you look at, on the left axis, the energy-related cost per year. You can drop it way down from like um, 1800 uh, down to like uh, 900 a year. And that's heating and cooling. Um, and, the, um, and this is all done, if you go up one slide, it's all just optimizing all the different building factors, your roof, your insulation, your walls, your thermal mass, your mechanical system. So it's, you have to take an integrated whole, whole building design to do this because there's a lot of interactions that you start running into. Where, when, you, uh, when you mention this net zero, are you talking about the DOE net zero program? Or has California adopted something more stringent than that? Well, they're pretty similar from what I can tell. I think there, and there's synergies there because, um, when the net DOE program will piggyback or use, uh, you know, kind of integrate with what California is already doing, but California is mandatory and, and DOE is voluntary. Okay. So okay. Uh, the, the other interesting thing that some of the DOE uh, uh, award winner programs are doing like in Arizona and now in the Southeast, there's another builder. They're uh, not only going to super efficient homes, um, and, and maybe not quite passive, but they're, uh, they've got them so efficient that they can now downsize the PV and mechanical systems and afford to put in batteries as the standard feature for new homes, market rate. Hmm. Now in Arizona, they're getting a subsidy from the utility because it's all grid connected and it acts like a peak power reduction for the grid. Uh, in Alabama or the Southeast, I'm not sure if they have subsidies right now, but the point is that not only can you optimize the building uh, and you need to, you need to optimize how it interacts with the grid because the, the peak power issues, the duck curve becomes uh, the driving factor. And that's where energy efficiency can really flatten out the duck curve. So there's big benefits and that's why we need to do energy efficiency first, then do the renewable energy and the grid stuff. Tom, I, I noticed on this slide, one of the, excuse me, optimization categories is water heating. And for the last three or four years, I go to a building science summer camp, Joe Steebrook's event up in uh, Westford, Massachusetts. And I wish I could remember the guy's name and I, I want to get him on the show. He, he does sessions each year 
sometimes in front of the whole group or sometimes small groups on water heating and, and optimization of uh, the use of carbon essentially to provide hot water in homes. I, I just wonder if you had any, any comments on that. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, using the right size pipe, having your source yeah, yeah. of hot water close to where you use the hot water and, and things of that nature. Do you have any comments on that? Um, yeah, it's probably Gary Klein. It uh, is. Yes. He's Mr. Uh, water heater. Um, if you go to the next slide, uh, two slides down, the one with the colored bar charts, uh, it breaks out this modeling we did for the Bakersfield uh, affordable um, net zero home. And water, hot water is that purple category, and it's pretty big. Wow, yeah. Uh, now, in this case, I think the baseline was already starting with a heat pump water heater, which is pretty efficient. Uh, this, this model is somewhat simplified, so it doesn't allow you to fine-tune all the plumbing and stuff like that. But uh, in terms of water wastage and energy wastage, yeah, there's definitely opportunities there, and it's part of the pie that we need to address. Um, I've been focused more on the cooling energy, which you can see in this slide, you can reduce it quite a bit by about 23% by optimizing all those different features in the building uh, before you even put on PV. Um, so for example, so for the colored bar chart, um, you can see the arrows where you can get reductions in the heating energy and cooling energy. Um, and, the, and it includes the fan power and the fan pumps and so on. So, uh, so if you can get it, uh, so what it says is that the current net zero standards are a pretty low bar. We can do much better by optimizing the buildings um, and, it, and it's very cost effective. The same thing was found in, in the UK and also in an Australian study for existing homes that I'll show you where uh, from the modeling and some field demonstration projects, they could do it very cost effectively over, you know, like 20 or 30 years. And that's with current energy prices. If you think how much energy prices are going to go up after, uh, you know, issues hitting the utility industry, then it's going to be even more cost effective. Um, let me see if I can find the Australian study here. And while you're looking, Tom, I want to mention that, you know, this slide is excellent. Um, I'm looking at other areas where we might be able to squeeze a little more efficiency out. Uh, I noticed the miscellaneous category at the bottom there is, it's pretty big. What What is in that miscellaneous category? Um, as I recall, it's more just um, consumer appliances and plug load stuff. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, so uh, all the big appliances are, are covered in the green category, I think. Uh, but, you know, I guess it could be TVs and computers and so on. And, and actually, like in some of the – the UCD dorm study, it turned out this, their energy performance was way off once students came in because they were bringing in refrigerators and big TVs and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Even though they they're were using their computers and they're charging their phones and things like that, I, I would imagine that all. Well, the fridge was probably the biggie that wasn't planned for and probably wasn't allowed, but they were, you know, ignoring it or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, let's see. Um, and this is a modeling study of uh, a top floor apartment buildings in Boston. And similar work was done in DC. And this was from MIT group. 
and let's see on zoom you're um, looking at yeah that one uh, as you can see they looked at different options at the bottom they have cross ventilation then they added shade then they added uh, reduced window uh, to wall ratio smaller windows and uh, and then they combined everything and this is during a historical heat wave uh, where the outside temperature got over 105 uh, and they modeled a power outage hmm. And you can see by adding these different features, they were able to drop the indoor temperature, you know, from over 90. Uh, well, let's see, it, it started ramping up and it got up to almost 95. Um, and uh, da, 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 da. See, anyway, they, but by adding these features, they could, you know, more and more reduce the indoor temperatures where they could eventually get them down um, max temperatures below 90, which is still not great. You know, for some people it would be dangerous, but it's still a lot better than uh, the outside temperatures, which were well over 90. So oh, that's a huge difference. Now, what's WWR? I'm sorry, I don't know. Oh, window, wall, window wall ratio. So okay. small windows. If you look at the graphics, you can see the windows get smaller. Um, they don't show the shade per se, but if you go to, the, I think, the next slide, what's the next slide? That one. They show different levels of shade as you go across the WWR as a percentage in the middle. And they're looking at uh, time on how to op meet um, um, energy uh, and overheating goals, I think. And so, uh, for example, currently at the top, you would start out with 30% window wall ratios. And by um, uh, 2080, you would want to have, uh, was it 47%? I'm just trying to think. But they also show the overhang, where the overhang gets bigger and bigger. and uh, in order to keep the building cool and the insulation levels, the R levels in the top corners get bigger and bigger. Now they do two optimizations, one's for cost and one's for carbon. And you get slightly different answers there. For example, um, for the carbon um, uh, optimization, you need much more shading. If you look at the top two rows, you'll see the second row has a lot more shading. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's going to be a really interesting factor how that plays out as we try to update and maybe future proof our buildings one thing i just discovered out of, out of uh curiosity i was looking at some tourist information in bermuda where i used to live uh, as a kid and they said unlike uh, that the traditional architecture there doesn't have much shading overhangs because of you know the hurricane wind risk mm -hmm. uh, they said that's unlike the the caribbean islands which are um maybe uh, not quite so open or, or uh, aware of her, uh, hurricane risk. So I know in, the, in Southeast Asia, wind risk from typhoons is a major design criteria and resilience issue um, for you know, how you design the whole building and, and, uh, and so on. So um, and when, and, I'm sorry, we're, gonna, we're running low on time. And I want you to, be, while we're still talking about changes we can make to buildings to help um you know to help help with using less carbon um let's talk for a moment about fireproofing buildings you're in the middle of california there we're in the middle of fire season you've got a you know a lot of stuff going on what what type of things can we do to help with respect to um making buildings more resilient with respect to fire 
Well, I'm not uh, an expert in that area. Um, and I follow it somewhat. I have families and friends that live in higher fire risk areas. Um, and I would point them to some recent uh, resilient design guidelines that Alex Wilson has put out at either Resilient Design Institute website or Building Green. Um, and also, um, you know, insurance industries now have rating systems and kind of specs for that kind of thing. And it involves not only the building structure itself, uh, but also the landscape around it and maintaining that fire safe boundary. Um, uh, and, and those, um, and, and they're doing annual inspections. You know, I have friends up, up in the mountains that get ticketed if they haven't cleared out all the pine needles and, and trees near their, their house and so on. Um, the, the, the buildings themselves, some building codes like in Lake Tahoe after a big fire there, they required fire resistant buildings and eaves that were covered a certain way and, and roofs that were fire resistant. So all that stuff's pretty standard. I think the bigger question we're facing now is the urban uh, wildlands interface is because the wildlands are getting uh, drier and drier and uh, there's more dead uh, uh, trees and fuel and so on. Um, and, and it's uh, only going to get worse probably. Um, and, and so people have built in these areas where their historical there were historically, you know, fires fairly often, but not so severe. But with our fire control strategies uh, to suppress the fires, the fuel load is built up to very dangerous levels. So to some extent, we have this backlog of burning, you know, for half a century or more. Hmm. It's going to take us decades to reverse that. So, I mean, sometimes I, I wonder, is is most of California or the West going to have to burn up, you know, on its own or with our help? Yeah, before uh, things are, get better. There are strategies to, say, burn uh, up in Yosemite. They're trying out burning uh, a checkerboard pattern of sections to, to create the buildup of super fires. Hmm. Now, the other issue is when you're getting 90 or 100 mile an hour winds, which are historical, you know, huge events here. I don't know if there's much you can do when the embers travel a mile or two. <laughs> right. Right. That's a terrible situation. Hey, we're, we're running low on time as I expected. We, we got through part two today, future proofing buildings. Um, we're going to go to the roundup and then as a, a final segment here, I'd like you to talk a little bit about beyond energy efficiency, although I think we've done a little of that so far. John, let's go to the roundup. <laughs> All right, let's do it this way, Tom. Why don't we give you the first crack at um, a little, you know, roundup here and, and talk a little bit about beyond energy efficiency. And then I want to go to Cliff and see if he has any final questions or thoughts. And, and then I'll get you a final question before we go. Okay. Um, beyond energy efficiency, um, I think as we were talking the other day, what that means to me is that um, – you know, we have to start looking at carbon, we have to start looking at health, we have to start looking at human performance, all these things that we want out of a building and out of our infrastructure. And we have to factor in um, life cycle over 50 or 100 years that those buildings and structures are going to last. And so, you know, bridge and highway and, and 
and airplane designers are already starting to do this, I think, but the building sector has been lagging. Um, and um, so uh, part of that is um, that it's not quite as easy and straightforward to factor in these other things. So that's why, you know, we're, we're working and, and trying to move towards that direction. Um, and some utilities are now factoring in what they call the non-energy benefits of, uh, say, weatherization and weatherization plus health, where they reduce asthma, hospital visits, and school day loss, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so those, in some cases, can actually, if you monetize it, outweigh the energy savings benefits. Uh, so those are things that, you know, as a society and as families and so on, we can really benefit from if we try to measure and track it. Um, school performance is a good example where a lot of schools, if you just Google overheating schools, you'll see them all around the country and uh, in some cases around the world where even outside of the summer season, these schools are overheating. And as the summer season grows into the spring and fall, we're going to see more of it. Um, but uh, there's kind of a debate now and some districts are trying to set, um, you know, temperature, upper temperature limits. Um, but the question is, you know, for kids and for pregnant women teachers and so on, you know, what limits do you set and how do you mitigate the problem? Um, so, uh, and I guess resilience is another one of those kind of beyond energy efficiency benefits where we know we're going to have more power outages and extreme events and how do we, um, you know, try to design and, and protect for that uh, beyond just straight energy costs, you know. Um, okay. Cliff, let me let you jump in here. Any thoughts or questions? I, I do have one. Um, if Tom, if if we reverse the situation and, and we look at flooding, and we look at what the government has done uh, in flood-prone areas where they, uh, you know, uh, bought the property, refused to allow people to build there, and uh, so on and so forth, do you think that that would be an effective strategy? Uh, that could potentially help in California uh, in some of the areas that seem to, you know, be hit uh, on, you know, with, with some frequency. In terms of fires or flooding or everything? No, in terms of fires. Oh, yeah. yeah um, you know, uh, it's already happening because of the market pressures from the insurance industry and general hmm. public awareness. Um, the insurance industry quickly started dropping coverage in some of these higher fire risk areas or jacking rates way up, depending on how well your, your house and your property were uh, protected uh, and, and uh, fire fireproofed in terms of the landscape and uh, whatever the, and how close you were to a fire station and whatnot. Uh, so that's had a huge uh, chilling effect on those real estate markets and probably future growth. Uh, flooding, I think that is starting to happen with FEMA and maybe insurers, except unless you're in Miami where they still want to build forever, I think. But, <laughs> uh, or they're going to create islands that you can build on, a floating Dutch island. But, um, the, um, but I think that... Um, you know, there's going to be kind of a natural uh, uh, weeding effect, uh, no pun intended, uh, uh, of of these homes that are in flood zones or fire zones or whatever. And, uh, you know, it took us a century to build out this, this kind of sprawl and uh, rural 
uh, forest, uh, idyllic, uh, green lawn uh, uh, building system and communities. And it's going to take us decades and decades to reverse that and, and make it more sustainable. Thank you. Tom, my final question, and then I'd like to give you an opportunity to, to kind of wrap things up with a, put a bow on everything here. But before we do, we do many of the things you're talking about here as a country in the United States. That's, I think it's a, a worthy goal. I think, um, in fact, we're, we're kind of heading in that direction. If, if we are alone in that and we don't get some of the other emerging, you know, uh, emerging economies to do the same thing, um, I see this as being a real, real difficult issue. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on that. How, how do we get not just the United States to do this, but other emerging economies? Well, let's um, go to slide 55. That'll kind of get us there. Um, it's about international guidelines for overheating and standards. And so to some extent, uh, you know, in the developed countries, this is already happening, uh, mostly in Europe and somewhat in Australia, now North America. Um, and uh, so, the, and movement towards low or zero or positive carbon is, is, is starting to happen and the Asian countries, I think, are paying attention um, uh, because if it if somebody else has, has shown that it can be done and done cost effectively and so on and done well, then it's much easier for them to jump on the bandwagon. And that's what I've heard um, people from Rocky Mountain Institute say when they're working in China for big development projects. Hmm. And related to another point you raised about um, emergency uh, assistance planning and things like that. Um, you know, you have to follow the money. And so who's funding a lot of this building and development around the world. And it's often these big uh, international development banks and the Asian development bank a few years ago started saying, you know, we're not going to fund anything in you unless you've done a life cycle uh, vulnerability assessment for climate change. Hmm. And so, you know, that keeps people from building in flood zones or, um, uh, fire zones and things like that. I, I uh, from, you know, that's the intent. I'm not sure. I haven't seen what's happening in the real world yet, but, um, uh, I think, you know, outdoor pollution in these other countries is also a driving factor too. And, and heat waves and they're, they're trying to, to deal with that through improving their building structures as well. Um, on this slide, you can see examples of from the UK and from the Passive House program where there are, are uh, indoor temperature uh, limits and number of hours to exceed those limits and using future climate scenarios to assess that. This is part of what we call vulnerability assessment. Um, and in some cases like London and maybe Manchester, they factor in uh, local districts within the city that have different urban heat impacts. So that, that goes on top of the climate change impacts. Um, and, the, um, uh, and similar things have started to happen in the U.S. Uh, through LEED, through um, a, a similar program that's merged with them on, on uh, resilience called the RELI, R-E-L-I. Um, and then uh, and the, the Collaborative for High Performance Schools, um, 
I helped draft a section on that on climate adaptation and resilience, which takes some of these principles and provides resources. Uh, so I think for because of financial incentives, public health pressures, um, and uh, uh, so on, the international community is going to, I think, follow uh, the leaders in this field, but it's, it's, it's still too slow, probably. Um, I would say the other thing that's going to drive it is general awareness. And one key point I wanted to make, um, if we have a second, is um, about the need to measure and so, uh, for example, uh, go to slide 46. Um, just the basic awareness of how, how big and bad the overheating problem is, is very valuable uh, to getting people's attention at all different levels. This is an example from um, low-income apartments in Harlem where they're measuring indoors and outdoors with these little sensors you see on the right. And they're basically getting a, a heat wave uh, two thirds of the time. Uh, well, or, uh, or maybe even more uh, compared to outdoor, they were exceeding the heat index levels two thirds of the time compared to outdoors. And they didn't have air conditioners and they, they were very expensive to install and to operate and so on. And, uh, and so this was a community-based uh, type project working with some researchers and nonprofit groups. And similar things are starting to happen in schools where uh, the, uh, the schools have been overheating and they pass big bond issues to improve the schools. And so people are starting to measure indoor temperatures and just find out, uh, confirm. It's confirming what we've seen from other studies that there's a lot of overheating already in our buildings and that you know it can be fixed. Uh, and then you want to measure afterwards to make sure you actually solve the problem. Of course, so data, uh, you know, is invaluable. You want, we want to measure what we value. In this case, it's health protection from heat, heat stress, basically. So I think in in developed and undeveloped worlds, with these inexpensive tools to measure temperature and humidity, I think we'll start to be, get much more realistic performance based. Um, um, uh, designs and operations of buildings. You know, I'm not sure. Before we go, Tom, I, you kind of gave me a nice summary there, so I don't know that I want to mess this up too much because I like the way you just ended that. But is there anything else you wanted to add or if you wanted to put a final thought out to listeners and uh, maybe one of these days you and I will get together and, and kind of put together a third show to summarize all this stuff and pick up on some of the things we missed? Well, let's say, uh, let's just jump down towards the end, 65 slide. And this is just maybe one of several examples about kind of the, the risks that we are, don't know about or are starting to know about. And, and, and similar to the, the question about tipping points, you know, and uh, because in the, some of the climate models and based on uh, geological data from millions of years ago, the climate, the Earth's climate can rapidly shift to a point where it won't recover and it'll stay in that altered state for a very long time. And so there are all these kind of uh, global issues that we're starting to understand a little. And this, this modeling that was done by, I think, USGS and folks like that looked at the mega drought history in the, in, in the Southwest and uh, 
these are droughts that last about 35 years and can destroy civilizations because we're already starting to be hit with food and water uh, crises around the world. Um, and so they, when they modeled uh, projected uh, climate change, for example, the middle uh, chart on the right is a four degree uh, increase by the end of the century, which is basically business as usual if we don't do much to control our carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. that, um, um, that will uh, shift a lot of the Southwest into this brown zone where you're like 90% probability of having a mega drought, um, <laughs> uh, you know, sooner than you would otherwise. And, um, and then if you factor in, uh, a, um, so that's just temperature increase. If you also factor in the interactive effect of, um, lower precipitation, that risk jumps from 90 to like 99%. Because um, you get this vicious cycle where once the soil dries out, it gets hotter and hotter, the plants die, you lose less carbon. I mean, you lose carbon from the soil and the cooling of the soil and moisture. So it's just this vicious cycle. And um, so you get desertification. That's what happened in Africa in the Sahel uh, region in the 80s. So, um, you know, those are the things that can uh, be super extreme conditions that, you know, historically we, we can't even imagine, but geologically or whatever they have. Uh, and so what that means in conclusion, I'll just wrap it up here. The next slide, um, we need to uh, adapt our buildings now uh, for these various risks and there's tools to do it. Um, we need to focus on vulnerable populations and, um, and target our efforts because we can't afford to fix everything. And we want to look at not only the short-term passive survivability issues, but the long-term life cycle issues, because you may only have a once in a lifetime opportunity to do that building shell, right? Or the shading or the, the roof or whatever. And then also try to phase in measures and plan for fix flexibility uh, so that it's easy to add later when you, when you need to, or when you can afford to. And so the tools and guidelines are available. Um, I could share information with people and some of the slides address that. And then if you, if you measure indoor heat humidity routinely and share that data and the solutions, we can then advocate and test out improvements. And next slide. Thank you for uh, listening and asking good questions and um, giving me some good fishing stories. <laughs> Tom Phillips, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Tom's with Healthy Building Research in Davis, California, and uh, really enjoyed having a chance to uh, talk to you both before and during this show. Also, uh, appreciate you talking to us a little bit more about uh, how climate change will affect indoor air quality, future-proofing buildings, and beyond energy efficiency. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Tom Phillips. To my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, our engineer, John, you got to have faith at the controls. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.